in in india they they are in a place where they have to decide how much these liberal western values apply in a country that is is this huge attractive market with a billion users but is also like you know sliding into authoritarianism and 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 how do you balance both those things hi i'm taylor owen and this is big tech My last international trip before the pandemic was to a conference on platform governance in Singapore. Speakers at the event outlined a range of tech policies being debated and implemented in the EU, the US, and in Canada. Things like imposing liability on platforms for the content on their sites, extending criminal law to certain online behavior, and creating government oversight for content moderation. There were also members of the Singapore government in the audience, who were in the process of developing their own set of laws. Laws that sounded a lot like the ones being developed in more liberal countries, but that have ended up being used to crack down on speech and to quell dissent. And this is happening in a range of other illiberal-leaning countries too. Turkey, the Philippines, Hungary, Poland, Brazil, and India. The Indian government has recently imposed a new set of sweeping regulations what they call IT rules, in an attempt to seize greater control over the platforms and the content on their sites. These rules are widely seen as a means of cracking down on the speech and political activities of Indian civil society. This is just the latest chapter in a tense, complicated relationship between the Indian government and the tech companies. And Pranav Dixit has been covering it from nearly the beginning. He's a technology reporter with BuzzFeed News and has seen many of these issues emerge firsthand. He's also just received a Neiman Journalism Fellowship and will be spending the next year studying at Harvard. I want to do an episode a little bit later where I really dive into the weeds on the challenges of governing technology and online speech in different geopolitical contexts. But I think to do that, we need to understand what's actually happening on the ground in countries like India, where the platform governance conversation looks much different than it does here. So to help me do that, here is Pranav. I want to start with a, with an article you wrote recently that that really caught my attention and many others, obviously, that you called, I thought my job was to report on technology in India. Instead, I got a front row seat to the decline of my democracy. Um, I'm curious what your beat was like when you first started covering this topic. I think like a lot of tech journalists, I got into this because I was interested in like, what's the shiny new phone around the corner? <laughs> like that <laughs> yeah. was, that was, I mean, I used to be on all the gadget blogs, uh, you know, uh, figuring out like, what are the new features in iOS? So I think for a long time, that was sort of my world. And I think what happened over time is that as tech became more and more mainstream uh, as tech exploded around the world, as Silicon Valley sort of exported its sensibilities to the rest of the planet uh, and started trying to get all these hundreds of millions of users outside the US to use its products. I think tech sort of seeped into everything, right? It seeped into culture, it seeped into politics. Uh, it's it, it really sort of became this inseparable part of, of society in general. 
that inter interplay seems kind of critical here. And you write that for years you tried to live in the comforting fiction that was happening in India and what was happening in the world of tech were separate things, but that's not true anymore. Um, so how did you come to that realization? Yeah, I think that realization emerged, um, you know, from a very specific place, to be honest. So back when I started writing about tech uh, for BuzzFeed News and also like maybe a couple of years before that, 2015-ish, I think at, I think it was a time of sort of great hope and optimism when it came to tech in India. I think it was about 2015 when Google had this big, splashy event in the country and Sundar Pichai had just become the CEO of that company and he came to India. It was his first trip to India, his home country as CEO. So since the verdict has come out loud and clear, let's call Sundar Pichai. And he announced, he made, he made pretty big announcements and he met the prime minister and it was a big deal. He was on all the front pages and, and, and it was a time when a, a big Silicon Valley tech company like Google was saying, hey, look, this is where our next billion users, as they like to call them, um, are going to come from. It's always the next billion. <laughs> it's always the next billion. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, you know, India is a country that has 1.4 billion people. Um, so it was, it was, it was a time that was full of like hope and optimism. And Google was sort of, you know, throwing free Wi-Fi at railway stations in the country. And um, you know, there was venture capital that was flowing in. There were lots of startups that were mushrooming in Bangalore. And you know, Amazon was looking to come to the country, and Netflix uh, was looking to come to the country. And you know, we had just gotten Uber, and you know, it was it was it was a very exciting time, right? Uh, suddenly, we were at the same table as as the rest of the world was. So I started writing about tech at you know during that time of hope and optimism. It was very exciting to write about it, and uh, over time, you know, especially in the last year or so. More and more, I started realizing that, oh, my God, my stories are all about how the government is, you know, censoring uh, content published to social media, how the government is cutting off people's Internet. Uh, and, and more and more, I realized, like, almost every story that I wrote involved the government somehow. And that made me, like, really depressed because I was like, did I, did I actually sign up? for this um i don't <laughs> think so where's my ipod launch event <laughs> exactly and you know it's funny because i i still remain like a gadget enthusiast to some extent i i still i mean wwdc which is apple's you know flagship developer conference is, is coming up next week and I'm, I'm really excited to just you know sit through that extended commercial a moment of zen <laughs> exactly so I, I i still care about that stuff but but that's that's sort of become secondary for me in, in terms of what I write about now. I mean, watching this from, from a distance and from the outside, I've been struck in the past year um, how, the, how the description of the state of Indian democracy has taken a quite radical turn. We went from calling ourselves the world's largest democracy to now every story everybody everybody writes. It's like India's increasingly authoritarian government, right? That's That's become like the label. Absolutely. And it's and it's not just the sort of broad media, but even these sort of all the big projects globally that track the state of democracy in different countries 
are kind of raising alarm bells. I mean, I saw just yesterday the VDEM Institute, which is this project that ranks democracies around the world, now labels India an electoral autocracy, um, which is, is a pretty slippery slope to a full autocracy. Um, you know, I mean, look, to some extent, I don't think even the United States was immune to this during the Trump era, right? Like, of right after Trump became uh, president, um, tech journalism in the US also became about misinformation and how the platforms uh, were treating what, you know, what Trump posted and their policies around around the president uh, to the rise of QAnon to, you know, the, 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 the insurrection at the Capitol. So I think to a large extent, uh, some of this happened in the US as well. But I think in India, particularly, uh, unlike Trump, Modi's not been voted out. Uh, he won by a landslide. Uh, we've got elections coming up in about three years in 2024. Um, there's worries that maybe he's going to come come back and then what's going to happen. Uh, so I think the worrying thing about India is just how fast we seem to have slid down the slope. Um, we weren't talking about all this so much even five or six years ago, right? It was it was it was not like this. And so what you spent your time writing on and working on has been this interplay between that slide and the emergence of certain technologies and platforms into Indian society. Um, so I'd like to spend a little time talking through how that how that happened. Um, and I, I feel like, at least from an outside perspective, one of the places this, one of the debates that seemed to catalyze both Indian society and both reaction to some of these technologies and the adoption of them was the introduction of free basics by Facebook in 2014. We believe that connectivity is a human right and that connectivity can't just be a privilege for some of the rich and powerful. It needs to be something that everyone shares. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what they what that was, um, what they were trying to do and why and, and how Indian society reacted. Yeah, sure. So Free Basics, which used to be known as internet.org, was it still is, it, it's not dead yet. It's 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 a Facebook initiative where Facebook, you know, presents it as a philanthropic effort. So, you know, in a nutshell, how it works is Facebook says, here's a list of 20, 40, 50 websites that we've approved. And we'll strike deals with carriers in certain countries. And if you access these websites that Facebook's approved, and, and of course, Facebook is one of those websites, uh, you will not be charged. Uh, you know, it won't count against your data. They'll be free. And um, critics of this say that this violates net neutrality because according to net neutrality principles, everybody should be able to access all websites equally and not have a certain section of the web like walled off or treated differently. Um, that, was, that was what Free Basics was. And Facebook was trying really, really, really hard to push it into India. Uh, and then there was a huge hue and cry about what was happening, which was very surprising because net neutrality is not, not something that your, your average person on the street knows about or cares about, really. But there was a big campaign and sort of, uh, 
influencers on the internet and comedians on the internet uh, got involved and 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 that's how it sort of snowballed into this big campaign uh, against Facebook. Um, Facebook tried to do many things to push it. Obviously, they were they, they were lobbying the government at the highest levels, but they also you know went on massive advertising and publicity campaigns. There were free basics billboards all across the country. They even tried to get millions of Indians to like send a petition to the internet regulator asking them to save free basics. Uh, the end game and the fallout of all this was uh, Facebook lost. And eventually, I think this was in early 2016, the Indian telecom regulator decided that differential pricing was not something that would be allowed in India. And differential pricing just means that if you are an internet service provider, you cannot charge people differently to access different websites. It's all or nothing. And since differential pricing was banned, free basics de facto became illegal. And what's interesting about this whole episode is that I think that was the first time that we saw any sort of sustained activism against a big internet like Silicon Valley tech giant in, in, in the country, right? Before that, it was it was kind of a free run for them. It, it seems like it didn't sort of curtail adoption really in any significant way. I mean, maybe there'd be even more users using sort of Facebook operated operating systems on phones or whatever it might be. But the adoption rate has been significant since. Um, and the relationship between the government and these platforms has not exactly continued to be hostile, right? In fact, quite the opposite in many ways. Um, it seems like Modi used these platforms to really entrench his power after 2014. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would say even before 2015, I think Modi is often known as the first social media prime minister. They were very, very savvy in figuring out how to use social media to really get their message across. Modi is somebody who's never had a press conference. He doesn't talk to journalists except the ones that he that he sort of likes. So it's all direct via social. To... It's all direct via social. It's it's absolutely a one way messaging street. You will never take. You will never see Modi take an unscripted question anywhere. And he really figured out how to get how to get his message across. And, and 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 the BJP, which is the party that he belongs to, it's India's ruling party, um, they, they, they were very, very savvy and very, very organized in figuring out how to use the internet to 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 spread propaganda across the country. And it and it really worked for them. It it it, it worked for them quite well. We didn't really have this sort of established, powerful right-wing ecosystem online before the last six or seven years, I would say. Like that, it, it, it didn't exist. And, and now it's a very powerful, powerful ecosystem. So, and how is that interplay between, how did that interplay between him and the platforms play out? Like, what are some examples of how he would either use or abuse it and they would push back? Um, were they fully acquiescing to his the more sort of radical use cases emerging from him and his supporters or yeah i think i think Modi is is is, is smarter in many ways than than trump right like <laughs> it's a low it's a low bar there <laughs> it's a low <laughs> bar uh, but 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 you know trump would just wake up and tweet whatever the hell he wanted right um and that made it 
almost easier for the platforms, I would say, to, you know, take action against him. They could, there was something you could point to as a violation of policies, even though they were very inconsistent in, in, in how they applied those policies to him. But, you know, there was something you could point to because he was shooting his mouth off. You will never see Modi tweeting like like Trump does. Like he will not shoot his mouth off. I mean, somebody's writing these tweets for him. They they go through like a system. You you can tell. Um, but but you know, the one thing that he does do is follow all these abusive trolls. If you if you go go to Modi's Twitter account and see the people he follows, a majority of them are just vile, abusive misogynistic trolls who who will go after anybody who who criticizes the bjp or the prime minister on twitter they will they will come after you your mentions will get flooded so i think what's happened is even though modi doesn't say anything himself he uh, him him and his party have really enabled this entire ecosystem of of supporters to say what they want and and unfortunately for whatever reasons the platforms have not been able to I don't want to say not being able to, but have been unwilling to sort of take any kind of drastic action against against these people. And why do you think that is? I think it's I think it's honestly it's a business decision. They have to stay in the country. They have to. This is this is the biggest market. It's you know they have their eye on the, the billion users. The next billion, as as we said, and it's the cost of doing business. It's 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 a delicate dance that they have to do where they have to strike a balance between standing up for their users on one hand, but also standing up for themselves and their business in the country, because you still have to deal with the same government when it comes to policies and when it comes to, you know, just making money in the country. The government of India in February this year, they came out with the new social media uh, guidelines, uh, which stipulate that messaging platforms would need to make provisions for the identification of the first originator of information. In this case, you know, chat messages. What have been these new IT rules um, that the government's put in place? Oh man, so these very controversial, you will you will see the word draconian written in many places uh, that is used to describe these IT rules. And it was... It was an executive order that pushed these rules. They did not, the, these these new IT rules are not laws in the sense they did not go through any parliamentary lawmaking process. Um, they were just laid down one day by a ministry and everybody was told you have three months to comply with these. And it's, it's, it's a hefty set of rules, but long story short, like some of the highlights are things like they have to appoint something called grievance officers which is really like just somebody at the company that the that the government can go after if the government doesn't like something that the companies did right uh, so they have to appoint these people for instance they have to take down content that essentially the government doesn't like the government says that it has its own reasons for asking social media platforms to take down certain content they 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 cite vague broad things like things that are a threat to india's national security but that can mean anything and that can include dissent right uh, so they 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 they, they, are, they must take down these things uh, when it comes to encrypted platforms like whatsapp for instance the government wants them to build in something called traceability, 
which means that um, the government want WhatsApp, wants WhatsApp to be able to tell them who sent a message, like who, who was the originator of a message. Like, let's say you get a forward on WhatsApp that's come through you after being forwarded from by like 10 people, but the government wants to find out like who sent it first. And WhatsApp says that's not possible because our platform is encrypted and even we don't know what's flowing through the platform. Uh, that's 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 like a legal tussle that that's happening right now between the government and WhatsApp. So there's there's many many things like that in these IT rules that have suddenly been thrust upon everybody that just give the government a very very powerful legal stick to beat beat the social media platforms into doing what they want. Have the farmers' protests and uh, and COVID sort of given more pretext to these regulations from the government side? Yeah, I mean, look, the farmers' protests have been happening in the country for many, many months and, and sort of reached a fever pitch in, in, in February when thousands and thousands of farmers sort of set camp outside New Delhi, uh, which is India's capital. And what you saw was as criticism of the government became more and more pronounced and more and more intense, um, the more desperate the government sort of seemed to become um, in terms of cracking down on the platforms. You know, there have been multiple instances of the government asking Twitter, for instance, to take down tweets that have been critical first uh, because of the farmers' protests and then because of how the government handled the COVID-19 pandemic. This seems almost like happening in both directions there where Twitter's been willing to both block tweets in response to government requests, but then label government tweets as being manipulated media, on the other hand. Twitter's like Twitter's stuck in a really, really hard place. In February, the government asked Twitter, this is how it sort of all began. The government asked Twitter to take down 250 tweets uh, that were mostly critical of the government because there were farmers' protests happening at that time. And Twitter did take down most of those tweets. They were forced to comply with the government's demands. And then they restored some tweets. And then they came out with a statement that said, because of free speech reasons, we are not going to take down tweets and Twitter accounts belonging to journalists, activists, media houses, and politicians. Uh, that was sort of how it all, all started. So, so I think that was the first time Twitter actually took such a public stand in the country. And it sort of snowballed from there. They they were asked to take down tweets uh, by the government repeatedly over the next few months. And, and, they, and they took down some and they left some up. And I think things came to a head in May when a bunch of BJP ministers tweeted a document that they said came from the Indian National Congress, which is the primary opposition party. And they said the document included things that were essentially strategies uh, cooked up by the Congress to, to defame the government and its handling of the pandemic. And Twitter put a manipulated media label on, uh, first it put the label on a single BJP spokesperson's tweet, and then it, then it, then it put this label on like a dozen other Twitter accounts, and they were all sort of members of the BJP. This really made the BJP mad. And there was one night at the end of May when Delhi police landed up at Twitter's Indian headquarters. Twitter office, Twitter office, 
nobody was there because everybody was working from home it was it was it was a lockdown but i think it was i think it sent a signal to twitter saying hey look if you if you mess around if you put your labels on 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 tweets belonging to members of the ruling party we are going to come after you so how would you sort of characterize the place the platforms are in right now here do you think they're just they're stuck in this need to be in the indian market but also figuring out how to have some pretense of their core values <laughs> remain and like how do you see that playing out with the platforms no absolutely i think the platforms are really really stuck between a rock and a hard place right now uh i think they're stuck between making making a choice and really deciding whether to stand up for the principles that they claim that they stand for right which is essentially western liberal values of free speech and democracy and you know in in india they they are in a place where they have to decide how much these liberal western values apply in a country that a on 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 one hand is is is, is this huge attractive market with a billion users but is also like you know sliding into authoritarianism and 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 how do you how do you balance both those things it's is is something that i think they're going to have to increasingly uh figure out over the next few months and years yeah i couldn't agree more and part of the real bind i think therein is that it's not just a country that they have to deal with here it's the governance in 150 plus countries all with varying degrees of democratic legitimacy but one of the the ironies of the discourse in democratic countries is the language being used here to regulate the internet or regulate platforms is being used uh, or, or copied identically um, in countries where they're doing it for illiberal ends. Um, I was recently at an event in, or recently, right before the pandemic, an event in Singapore. And it, it was remarkable. The government was using basically identical language as European governments in the EU um, to talk about and even write draft legislation that was clearly being used for illiberal purposes. I wonder how you look at that tension, right? Like, how, it, In some ways, the IT rules in India look a lot like Canadian proposed harmful speech regulations. Yeah, I mean, there's some wild things in there, like asking WhatsApp to you know, build in traceability and, you know. Yeah, that gets discussed in democracies too, right? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of police forces in Canada that would like to, to have a backdoor to encryption, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also the UK, I believe, and uh, Australia also, I think. So yeah. this is not just, this is not just happening in India, but it's interesting because I think, uh, I think the platforms fumble, particularly, especially in countries like India, like, Look, on one hand, when they operate in countries like the U.S. with an established First Amendment and 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 liberal values and 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 a proper functioning democracy for the most part, right? Um, you have the platforms operating in 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 countries like that, where they more or less, you know, have 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 an easier job when it comes to framing policies and rules. 
Um, so they they kind of know what to do. But and then you have them in countries like you know just completely totalitarian authoritarian countries where like like China for instance where it's where it's easier for them to decide look like we 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 just cannot operate at this market we we have to pull out we 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 cannot be there well they're they're searching they're searching for that wiggle room to get in right I mean, sure sure yeah. of course because yeah. it's it's always about the next billion right uh but but what what do you do in a country like india which is sort of in between uh, it's not quite completely liberal, but it's also not quite completely authoritarian. And how do you navigate that space, right? Which I think is something that 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 there's, they're struggling with. Yeah. Another tension there is that um, if one is living in one of those established democracies you mentioned, or function, largely functioning democracies, um, as a citizen, you might want your government being the one to make rules about speech. To regulating speech, but in other contexts, you might want you might prefer the platform's definition of free speech than your government's. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. I mean, would you would you essentially rather Facebook be determining the speech of Indian citizens or the Indian government? No, I definitely don't want Facebook deciding the speech of Indian citizens. But we're in a we're in a time when you also don't want the government to be this in in charge of all that right like i think i think this is the government that has a trust deficit with people you don't you don't know if they're doing something with the right intention right in 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 most cases it's it's to it's to amass more and more power and, and sort of crack down on anybody that they don't like uh and that that that's purely going by like the track record so far um the one thing that the platforms haven't done right is they have not been transparent at all, right? They have been completely opaque in in how they come up with their policies and how they implement these policies. Um, and I think that hurts them, especially when it comes to countries like India. I'll give you, you know, the example that we talked about, which is the manipulated media label. They put this label on this raging political controversy in the country and didn't bother to explain to anybody why they put that label on those tweets, right? You can't do that. You can't just slap a label that says that something that is at the heart of the biggest political controversy in the country that involves the ruling party and the opposition party is manipulated media. If you put that label, you've got to explain why you put that label, right? So I think so. I think not being transpa- transparent really hurts 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 them. So we started our conversation talking about this liberal slide and how you've watched that play out over the past half decade. Um, and you're about to, to leave India for a year in the US. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're optimistic about what you'll come back to um, and about the near future of India. Um, if I had to answer that question, honestly, uh, it's it's really hard to be optimistic right now. It's... Uh, it's uh, I, I mean I, I personally I'm dreading the future. Um, you know we don't know where we don't know where we are headed, and the, the the sense of optimism, the sense of hope, the sense of you know you can do anything, the sense of aspiration. I think I think sadly that has that has been greatly greatly diminished over the last few years. So no, to answer your question, no, I I I I am not I'm not optimistic about 
what's going to happen at the end of a year that's like wow that sounds like a really sad answer but but it's true <laughs> That was Pranav Dixit. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.